the next thing is an exhortation, right? That's uh, one thing I talked to you all about last week is that I'm looking to involve our congregation in our service in the morning. So what I'm looking for is people that throughout your week, you know, you might have been dealing with something or thought about something or read something in Scripture, and you would be willing to share that with the congregation on a Sunday morning. So today, instead of the exhortation, because I did not get a call from any of you that you uh, had something for this week to present, and uh, since my message in and of itself is a by and large exhortation to all of us, we will all find ourselves to be wives or husbands or children or bosses or, sl- or workers, not slaves. But uh, So we'll all kind of have an exhortation this morning. So I did not prepare a part uh, exhortation for everybody. Uh, instead, just prepared a sermon that will be exhorting. So with that, I'm going to ask you to uh, join me in prayer as I begin my sermon this morning. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that my insight into your word, Lord God, is glorifying to you, that I will preach your word to the congregation today, Lord, and we will all find a blessing and a word for each and every one of us in this text to the Ephesians, Lord God, that I will be responsible in my job to read through the context of the writings, Lord God, and to preach a message that is in spirit and in truth, Lord God, that is in its original context and also applies to each and every one of us through that context, Lord. I pray that today's sermon is glorifying to you and edifying to each and every one of us, and we pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so today's text, we're actually going to be reading through Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 to chapter 6, verse 9. For the past seven weeks, we've been going through the book of Ephesians. I didn't realize that it's already been seven weeks. This book is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus around the year 60. What we have in this letter is the Apostle Paul explaining the mystery of God and how that was being revealed in that generation as it had never been revealed before. The mystery was how the Gentiles, the nations outside of Israel, would come to share in covenant relationship with God without distinction of Jew and Gentile. Instead, through Christ, one new man, was being formed. Through faith, true Israel was being revealed, and the Gentiles had a place in covenant relationship with God. This was a glorious mystery that was being revealed in the first century. How would this be accomplished? Would the Gentiles come under the law of Moses, as Israel of old did? Would the Gentiles be required to follow the covenant of circumcision? How would the Gentiles have a place in relationship with with God, and what would guide that relationship? As the Apostle Paul is documenting this new reality that was coming into place, he was also explaining how this would look, how the one body, the one new man, the church, would effectively be edified and make this manifold wisdom of God known to the nations. Granted, this was primarily dealing with what was occurring in the first century, the fact that Jew and Gentile were merging together into this one new man. This is the context of the New Testament. This is the struggles of the New Testament church on how this is going to look and what is going to occur in the church. Something was growing old and getting ready to vanish away as this new covenant was coming into focus. It is vital to understand this context to be able to elaborate on the details of this letter. Otherwise, we end up injecting our own thoughts, our modern context, and our own reasonings into the text instead of allowing the text to inform us of truth and forming our views around that truth. 
So yes, the Apostle Paul begins to explain to the church at Ephesus in light of the blessings and realities that were coming into focus at that time in Christ, in the Beloved, that they should therefore be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. He explains that we know to, what we know today as the fivefold ministry, how according to the proper working of each individual part, it causes the growth of the body, the church, for the building of, of itself in love. And we read about that in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16. The apostle then continues to admonish the church to no longer walk as the Gentiles do. The contrast between aimless living and life abundant, which is found in and through Jesus Christ. God was calling all men to repent and come into covenant relationship with him through Christ. And the church is called to make known that manifold wisdom, that grace that God was giving out to all men, not just the nation of Israel. Inviting all men and women to put on the new self and walk worthy of their calling. As we discussed last week, this message, what this means is putting aside the things that characterize the old man. The old self, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Being imitators of God. We ended last week with the admonishment that we are to be subject to one another. And we did this as we celebrated the Lord's table last week. Remembering that we come into communion with God and we also come into communion with one another. That it's we the church that are called into communion with God. Today's text continues in light of that thought. I would imagine that just as important it was for us, or it is, for us to subject ourselves to one another in the body of Christ to be able to make this message known, so it will be for our relationships in our everyday lives. Our husbands, wives, bosses, and workers, our daily relationships serve as a microcosm of the unity that we have in the body of Christ. How you're treating your wife, or how you're treating your husband, how you're being a worker, or how you're treating your workers are all going to determine what this looks like to the world. Our relationships are important. And I believe that's exactly what Paul is telling the church at Ephesus. That this is very important. You, you know, in order to keep the peace in the church, to keep the bond of unity that's calling you all together, in order to exhibit this manifold wisdom of God to the nations, you must walk worthy. You must see how this is infused in every single aspect of your life. So let's begin by reading through the text. We're going to read through Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 to Chapter 6, verse 9. Wives, be subject to your, to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you is to love his own wife, even as himself, 
and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Not by way of eye service, as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, that he will receive back from the Lord, whatever, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same thing to them, and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Okay, so our first verse we're dealing with is, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. It seems this is a controversial verse in our society that values equal rights and the rise of feminism. Right? There seems to be a serious confusion of context on this verse. This verse in no way, shape, or form teaches male dominance. Instead, remembering that in verse 21, it says that we are all called to be subject to one another. This being subject means to yield one's rights. So obviously, the wife has rights. She's just yielding her rights. Alluding to Philippians chapter 2, where it says that to regard one another as more important as, than yourself. That is the Christian attitude. To regard others as more important than ourselves. So it shouldn't be that complicated for a wife to be subject to her husband, to see him as more important than herself, if that's how we treat everybody anyway. The text continues, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body, but as the church is subject to Christ, Christ does not demand that we submit. Instead, our submission is out of love, trust, and faith in who he is. So it would be the same for a wife to her husband. She's putting her, she's subjecting herself to her husband because of her faith and love and trust in who he is to her. This text comes to us from a patriarchal system. This is a patriarchal society that we're reading this in. The men led the family. This would not be, would not be as much contested as it is today in this context. You wouldn't have heard people having all these issues and, people, and some pastors being scared to even preach this because of the way that the order goes. Yes, I as a guy, I'm, you know, I'm kind of nervous to come up and teach a bunch of women to submit to their husbands and that he's the head of you. Yes, it's you know, quite humbling to have to come up here and preach that. The Apostle Paul says, matter-of-factly, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. In this time of transition where in Christ would be neither Greek nor Jew, nor male nor female, it was important that the change be not so drastic in the church, remembering that the context was to preserve the unity in the spirit and keeping the bond of peace. Remember, that's what Paul's saying before this passage in this letter. That's the danger of having chapters and verses, is that he's continuing a thought. He's continuing a thought of what this church is to look like. Remember, he tells us how to act, and now he's telling us how to have our relationships. So he's continuing the thought of unity. And he's telling people how to keep this unity. So in a patriarchal society, you're not going to say, oh, you know what? There's neither male nor female. Just everybody, you know, everybody's in charge. There's no uh, system of order. Of course, he's going to keep the same order. And he's 
pretty much pleading with the church to keep the order. Keep the order. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the apostle says, The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in the church. Just as the law says. They're not trying to disrupt everything. Because obviously those of us that know the New Testament know that there was quite a few things that were changing in the New Testament church. This is something that was, let's keep the order. Because a couple of verses back it says that God is not an author of confusion. In this way of society, the wife would look to her husband for provisions and caregiving. I'll tell you, it's a scary text to have to deal with the husband being the head in a room full of women. But the context is so important in this passage. Again, remembering the social climate. I firmly believe that the apostle was trying to keep the order in the church. This is not teaching that women do not have a role in the church. The woman would look to her husband. She would look to the male leaders in their society for instruction. Her submission is so that her husband might serve her better. For example, in verse 25, it is the husband who has the responsibility to give himself up for her. Just as Christ died for the church. He is commanded to love his wife as he loves himself. We don't see this being said to the wife. The wife is simply told to subject herself to her husband, who's told to give himself up for her. Utilizing the illustration of Christ and the church, if the church rebels to submitting to Christ, she loses her identity. She loses the blessings of being found in Christ. So it would be the same for the wife who rebelled to submitting to her husband. She would lose her identity. She would lose the blessings of a husband who's giving herself up for giving himself up for her. Submission is a Christian trait. It shouldn't be something that we have that much of a problem with in the body of Christ. When we yield our own personal rights and allow others to lead our behavior, such as submitting to the government or submitting to our husbands, we give those an opportunity to watch our behavior. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we are told to submit to every human institution for the Lord's sake. The text says that this finds favor. Then in chapter 3 of the same epistle, we read, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. As they observe your chaste and respectable behavior, the text then continues to admonish the wives to let their adornment of beauty be not only external but internal, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of the Lord. So it's telling the wives to submit to their husbands because their husband is going to lead them, going to love them, going to give himself up for them. So praise God for godly wives. I remember reading that Titus was encouraged to teach older women. And in Titus chapter 2, he says, Be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslave too much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. I skipped a word in there. It's kind. Uh, being kind. I don't know why I skipped that. There you go. That's, that's in there. 
you know, workers at home kind being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. A valid point to make would be, is the husband walking worthy of a submissive wife? The husband is commanded to give himself up for the wife. So if we clarify the role that the godly wife is to submit to her husband, we must examine the husband's role. And you notice Paul's not being biased here. He's saying, wife, submit to your husband. Husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church. He's not just, you know, it seems that many people when they talk about this passage, they get all up in arms about the part that the wives are submit to the husband. I'm like, well, the husband's supposed to give himself up for his wife. It's a mutual thing. It's not a bias, you know, a man against feminism type of thing. No, instead it's saying, no, submit in love because you're going to find your identity in a loving husband. Husbands, love your wives. Not just a love that is warranted for your favorite food or person or idol or music. No. But a love that is identified by the love that Christ had for the church. The church he gave his life up for with the intent to present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. But that she would be holy and blameless. A godly husband loves his wife with a love that helps her to be all that she is called to be. That's why Christ died for the church. That's why he gave himself up for the church. That the church, by his grace, would be all that we are called to be. And the husband's compared to the same thing. The wife submits to the husband so that he can do his role in enabling her to be all that she can be. The husband is called to love the wife the way he loves his own self. Nourish and cherish her just as Christ does the church. The Apostle Peter in his first epistle, chapter 3, says it this way, you husbands in the same way, the same way the wife is submitting to him. Submit yourself to your wife, the same way she's submitting to you. You're both submitting in a mutual understanding that you're edifying one another. In Ephesians, Ephesians verse chapter 5 verse 31 he quotes Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become what one flesh for what reason the reason of becoming one with one another the apostle Paul points out next that this mystery is great he points out that he is speaking in reference to Christ and the church remember this whole letter was speaking about bringing the bride of Christ, the church, the one new man, into relationship with God. This is done through the marriage of Christ and his bride. Many were leaving behind biological families, views of their biological families, possibly religions of their biological families, to be made one flesh with Christ, with God through Christ. Nevertheless, nevertheless, each individual is to, among you is also to love his own wife even as himself and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband nevertheless while this is depicting Christ and the church the truth is still stands the same every individual is to love his wife and his wife is to respect her husband you know it seems a lot of people want to get away with this by saying well that's actually talking about Christ and the church no it, it, well it is absolutely amen but that's why he says nevertheless you know, yes, I'm saying that, but in the same way, 
We are talking about you wives respecting your husband and you husbands loving your wife as you love yourself. For a more in-depth look at marriage, the Apostle Paul clarifies in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that in a marriage, the husband no longer belongs to himself, but he belongs to his wife, and vice versa. An amazing story of the Christ-husband-wife accountability that I found very uh, encouraging is the story of Richard Wormbrand and his wife, Sabina. Richard Wormbrand was a Christian leader during the time that Romania was under communist rule. The communists had brought all the Christian leaders to decla- to- together to declare that Christianity is communism and communism is Christianity. As Richard and his wife sat there and listened to Christian leader after Christian leader stand up and, quote-unquote, spit in the face of Jesus by declaring that communism is Christianity, that, yes, this is okay, this state-sanctioned religion, it was his wife that turned to him and said, they're spitting in the face of Jesus, looking to her husband, a godly man, a godly leader of the church, saying they're spitting in the face of Jesus. Now notice this wife is now holding her husband accountable to his head. And he replies, if I say something, you will no longer have a husband. Obvious reference to the persecution and martyrdom that was going to come if he was to say something against the state. Her response I don't wish to have a coward as a husband. Richard then stood up and spoke out, and it led to 14 years in prison, in a communist prison, and his wife was held in a work camp for three years. I relay that story to exhibit the fact that the husband is the head of his family. Yes, he's the head of his wife, but the wife should also know who his head is, Christ. He's to lead his family in the truth. The wife being the helper... Right? That's what we read in Genesis, that the, the woman was made to be the helper, is going to hold him accountable to his role. Remember? The mutual submission. You're holding me accountable to my head, and then you're going to be held accountable to yours. That way we can both bless each other. We can both be the best that we can be walking in unison, in one flesh. The submission is not a matter of control. The submission is a matter of helping this system create the church. That's The church is being blessed by Christ. We're coming under the submission of Christ. That way we might be able to walk worthy, right? So the wife is to submit to her husband. The husband is to submit to Christ. And it's just a, it's a beautiful system that's put into place. In chapter 6, verse 1, we read, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. It's been said that the better translation would be that Children, obey your parents because of the Lord, for this is right. Because I sat there and I I read and I said, so should we only, uh, you know, I was looking for my way out. And I said, well, then maybe children should only obey their parents that are in the Lord. That's not what it says. It's the better translation if you were to go through the Greek. It's actually because of the Lord. It's going along the same themes of wives and husbands. Remember, it says, wives, submit to your husbands as to Christ. Children, submit to your parents' authority. Listen to your parents as you would Christ. Because of Christ. The word obey, which literally means stand under. It means to be under another's authority. It was a military term used in scripture. It is the same word that would apply to a soldier obeying his orders. It means to follow orders. I know, the children in the room. We're all children. We all have to follow somebody. So, to put it very practically, it plainly says... Do what your parents say. The Apostle Paul continues by citing one of the Ten Commandments. 
Honor your mother and father. Notice it says this is with a promise. So that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. This is quoting from the Old Testament. And what it was is they were entering into the land of Canaan. So you're going to listen to your parents because you're going to live long on the earth, which was a promise of moving into the promised land. You, know, you follow the law. You listen to your parents, obviously being a Jewish youth. You would follow the law. You would listen to the instruction of your parents. Many of you, if you've read through the book of Deuteronomy, they have a long passage that talks about teach your child while he's laying down, while he's sleeping, while he's standing, while he's, you know, recite these verses, put them on your door. This was something they took very serious. This was the instruction that the parents were giving their children. Follow the law. So this would be a promise that you would live long and you live long on the earth. You would inherit the promised land. In Proverbs, we read, My son, observe the commandment of your father and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk to you. That's Proverbs chapter 6, verse 20 through 22. Listen to the instruction of your father and the teachings of your mother, and it's referred to as being a graceful wreath around your neck and a graceful wreath to your head and an ornament around your neck. I'm not very sure on the wreath to your head thing, I'll uh, look into that. I'm, I, I don't wear wreaths on my head. I, don't, I, you know. um, I just remembered that. I noticed my mother is not here. It's too bad. So uh, obviously this is not a command to blindly follow the teachings, every teaching of your mother and father. That's, that's not what we're reading here. Since contextually, the Jews were being rebuked for following the ways of man, the ways of their fathers. The pagans as well, in this context of the book of Ephesians, were forsaking the religion of their fathers. That's why we see the command in, from Jesus to be willing to leave behind your mother and father, your sister, your brother, your wife, for the sake of Christ. There is an obligation upon the parents for righteous instruction. And the next verse illustrates that well. Again, Paul is not bigoted. He tells the wife to submit to the husband. He tells the husband his job. He tells the child to listen to his parents. And now we will see he talks to the fathers. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the disciplines and instruction of the Lord. Just as children are commanded to obey their parents, so their parents are commanded to walk in line with the teachings of the Lord. As I was reading through this text this week, I, I just thought, I love the way the Lord puts these systems together. You know, He put together the church by grace. He put together the systems in the church by grace. Now we see he's putting together the systems of relationships and family. The wife submits to her husband, who submits to Christ, which enables a loving and edifying relationship. Children are commanded to obey their parents, and their parents to walk in light of the Lord, enabling them both to be edified by the knowledge of God. If my parents are walking in the knowledge of God, and they're teaching me, and I know that my, I'm commanded by the word to follow my parents, I'm being moved forward to live a long life, to live a, well, in this context, it might have been a short life, but to live a blessed life, so to speak. That's what that, that text was uh, alluding to. Just to uh, kind of add some context here, it would be kind of outrageous if this text was saying, you know, Christianity is being persecuted, you're being hunted down, so children, obey your family, your mother and father who are becoming Christians, and that way your life would be long. No, no, it doesn't really work that way. So, it, you know, obviously their life wasn't very long in the New Testament time. These people were being killed for being Christians. So what's happening here is the, him citing this verse 
from the Old Testament is showing that this was a blessing of the people. It was considered a blessing. Like I said, it, they knew that to live a, uh, to cite the verse actually, it says that so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Again, it would, the context wouldn't allow that. What it said, this was a blessing to the Jews that they would enter into the promised land. So the same thing here is for children. Listen to your parents. That way you may enter into the promised land. You may enter into the promise. It's not saying that if you always listen to your parents that you're going to live a really long life. It's not, that's not what the context is saying here. So then we continue. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Again, showing that all of this is being done because of Christ. Understanding the context of this command, when slaves were coming to Christ, they were told that they were free. So they were slaves to no man but God. This, this seems like a, a time for a, a rebellion, you know. No, long, no longer a slave. I am free by Christ. Yet the command is to be obedient to their masters according to the flesh. Don't just throw off your obedience and rebel because of your newfound freedom. With fear and trembling. This is the same way that Paul went before the Corinthian church. In a manner of humility. You know, work for your, your masters, your bosses. Obviously, in our context, we don't have masters. We have bosses. Work for your boss in a matter of humility. As if you were working for the Lord. something interesting to think about. I, I've been encouraged by that passage so many times as I, I just sit here and think. I, when I've worked, you know, jobs, part-time jobs, and had to sit there and say, work as if you're working for the Lord. Work as if you're working for the Lord. And uh, definitely an encouragement. So, in sincerity of your heart as to Christ, don't just do it because it's commanded. Find sincerity in it. Do it from the heart. Because we've all seen somebody that's doing something simply because they were told to do it, right? That's not a worker I want. I'm sure that master doesn't really want He probably, you know what, go find that freedom in Christ. Please, leave. The apostle clarifies, by not, not by way of eye service or as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With goodwill, render service as to the Lord, not to men. Knowing that whatever good thing each one does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. I would think about that, that if I'm a slave and I'm like, I don't, you know, if you bless my master or if you send a blessing to the house that I'm living in, I don't get much. I'm a slave. I get whatever my master decides that I'm going to get. Here what he's saying is that, no, whatever good deed even you as a slave do for the Lord in your service, you will be rewarded as well, whether slave or free. Don't have the fear that it's going to come to my master's house and I might get, you know, out of $100, I'll get two. And uh, No. That if your good service will be rewarded by Christ, there is no partiality, as we will soon see in this text. Our work toward men is to be fueled by our service to God. It's quite humbling. And therefore should provide us all with what is called the Protestant work ethic. Emphasizes hard work and frugality. I say that word right? Frugality? Anybody want to contest it? Okay, good. I had to look it up this morning, actually, and push the sound button to make sure I was going to say it right. So the master or the boss is commanded by the Apostle Paul to do the same toward their slaves. If you read, it says, And masters, do the same thing to them 
and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours in heaven is the same in heaven, and there's no partiality with him. It's good to know that God doesn't look at my boss, so to speak. Well, God is my boss. But, you know, our bosses as, you know, uh, better than us or more important than us, more worthy of a blessing than us. But instead, there's no partiality with God, as you can see through this text. Again, I will go right back to the beginning of the text. Wives, there's no partiality. That's why it says there's neither male nor female in Christ. There's no partiality with God, but what he's doing is he's giving you a way to show your husband love to be edified by your husband by submitting to him. Husband, same thing. You know, I know some, some husbands probably want a bigoted God that you know, kind of just lets us be the dictators in marriage. And, you know, men, we rule the world. But uh, fortunately, our God is not a God of partiality. We are one in Christ. Master, remember you are a slave to God. Bosses, you are a slave to God. Mike, you are a slave to God, right? We could all say that, just put our name right there. You are a slave to God. We see this in the letter of Philemon, who was a slave owner, who Paul was exhorted, who Paul was exhorting to take back his slave Onesimus. He says, don't take him back necessarily as just a slave, but take him back as a brother in the Lord. The master is to give up threatening. To give up threatening. Since this is not the manner that Christ is master over us. Do we see Christ threatening us? No. Well, if you've heard certain doctrines from the church, maybe it does sound kind of threatening. Luckily, I don't believe in those doctrines. That's great. Um, if anybody wants to see my debate on eternal conscious torment or annihilationism, let me know. I'll uh, tell you all about it. So Christ does not need to threaten us to have us to walk worthy, right? Of our calling? No, instead he shows us the blessing of being in him. Just as the same for a worker under his master. The master he does not need to thre- stop threatening your workers. Instead, show them the blessing of working for you. Remind them of the blessing that they're working for the Lord. And let that be enough. Give up threatening. Treat your slave as one in Christ. Treat your slave as a worker. Be humble. Be graceful. It says... The same way that the slave is to submit to the master, the master is to submit to the slave. This was causing, I would see how this would cause controversy in the, you know, within the work environment, you know, within the church or even without the church in this time. So, again, this is another beautiful illustration of relationships properly submitted, keeping that bond of peace that Paul was talking about two chapters back. Keep that bond of peace. Remember that you are called... To make known the manifold wisdom of God. So God doesn't leave us without insight. He says, no, here, I'll I'll give you the relationship uh, system. Fall in line with it. Live in this manner. Overall, let us live in light of the Lord. Let us live in light of the blessings that we read about in Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2. Let us walk according to the calling that we have in Christ. In everything we do, let us do it for the glory of God. Another clarification of the same concepts we see here in Ephesians is in Colossians chapter 3. I would encourage you all to read it. If you find, you know, an issue with Ephesians chapter 5, go and read Colossians chapter 3. In 1 Peter chapter 3, these these details are well illustrated as well. Talking ahead of myself. And I love the way that Paul wraps up this whole topic. He says this, To sum it up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, Brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, 
not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Remembering the context of the entire letter of the, to the Ephesians shows us the importance of our relationships properly submitted to one another. Going back to the beginning of chapter 4, we read, Therefore I, Paul, implore you, equivalent to begging you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. The church, again, being called to make known the manifold wisdom of God. Do so with all humility, gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It's important to remember that you have Jew and Gentile coming into the church, different customs, different, different everything. I could go down a list for you. The, everything was different to these two different people. So you have these two people coming into one new man being made into the church. And this letter is detailing the blessings at the beginning as we went through in the sermon series. We go through the be- blessings. We grow th- go through the importance of the knowledge of God and growing in this knowledge of God. Knowing the blessings that we have and being able to walk in them. Then he tells us how the church is to operate. Then he tells us to put on the new man. To wa- the, put off that old self bitterness and clamor and gossip and slander put off those things put on the new man of love gentleness kindness meekness self-control and then he tells us how to live in relationship because god knows that he god wasn't blind to what was going on in the first century church he wasn't leaving the church to fend for themselves he said i will give you the insight on how to do this because after all if god doesn't give us the insight or give us the grace in any of this i think we'd all kind of fail This was not a passive text being given. This is not a passive text in the book of Ephesians here. This wasn't speaking about a false love, a false humility, a false concern, a false concern that's sadly sometimes very evident in the church. This keeping the bond of unity amongst ourselves. That's something very important. There was some serious animosity in the church in the first century. These teachings, the command to walk worthy and live in the attributes, are equivalent to being imitators of God. They're enabling the church to keep that unity, to move forward in our calling. We are one in the Lord. That's a a hefty thing that we have to follow through with. We have to know how to live in each and every relationship. We can't say, I do not know how I'm called to live in my relationship with my wife or how I'm called to live in relationship with my husband or how I'm called to be a worker. We have the text right here. So with that, I admonish you all to uh, walk worthy, walk in that, live in that. And I will end my sermon at that. I will, uh, at this time, keeping the fact that we are called to make known the manifold wisdom of God before our eyes, that we're called to walk worthy. All right, that's our thing. This should be readily on our minds at every moment. So at this time, I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward and take our missions offering with that in mind.